Two junior college kids in Chicago hatched a plan in the early 1970s that could have resulted in the deaths of millions, or not? Pour yourself a tall glass of your favorite refreshment and get ready for the story of Rise, the plot to poison Chicago's drinking water. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Plane hijackings, kidnappings, murders, the first half of the 1970s was bonkers. The writer behind the Twitter account, Roseland Chicago 1972, a great follow if you're a fan of early 1970s Chicago stories, has shared a lot of these headlines in posts, and this one jumped out at me as I had never heard about it. Before we get to that, a little background on infectious diseases as biological weapons through the ages. Trust me, it's all part of the story. According to Stefan Rydell, MD, in his paper, Biological Warfare and Bioterrorism, a Historical Review, infectious diseases were recognized for their potential impact on people and armies as early as 600 B.C., the crude use of filth and cadavers, animal carcasses, and contagion had devastating effects and weakened the enemy. Polluting wells and other sources of water of the opposing army was a common strategy that continued to be used through the many European wars, during the American Civil War, and even into the 20th century. The article goes on to list a few of the more memorable... Mm, that doesn't sound like the right word... Events in the history of what we now call bioterrorism. 1155, Emperor Barbarossa poisons water wells with human bodies in Tortona, Italy. 1346, Tartar forces catapult bodies of plague victims over the walls of Kaffa Crimean Peninsula, now Feodosia, Ukraine. 1495, the Spanish mix wine with the blood of leprosy patients to sell to their French foes in Naples, Italy. Yum! 1710, Russian troops catapult human bodies of plague victims into Swedish cities. 1763, British distribute blankets from smallpox patients to Native Americans. 1863, Confederates sell clothing from yellow fever and smallpox patients to Union troops during the U.S. Civil War, and of course, the later introduction of more modern biological agents such as anthrax, mustard gas, and sarin. Biological attacks work on the basis of the simple idea that if the infected keep infecting, there really isn't a lot you have to do except not get infected yourself. Back to Chicago. Fun fact, I learned while researching this episode that the water filtration plant on the south side of the city, now called the Sawyer Water Purification Plant, was originally called the South Water Purification Plant. It was the first water filtration plant built in the city of Chicago, and when completed in 1947, it was the largest one of its kind in the world. 
The water filtration plant just north of Navy Pier, originally called the Central District Filtration Plant, was constructed over a 13-year period and began operating in 1964. It was later renamed Jardine Water Purification Plant after James W. Jardine, a 42-year city employee who served as water commissioner from 1953 until his retirement in 1973. You'll hear his name later. The Jardine plant is another one of those built-on-landfill structures in Lake Michigan. The Jardine water purification plant purifies 1 billion gallons of water each day, more than any other system in the world, utilizing 12 ginormous pumping stations and more than 4,200 miles of pipes to satisfy the daily water needs of 5 million combined residents of the city and 118 suburbs. And yes, I could go on longer about water filtration plants. They actually work into a future episode. But for now, just keep in mind that they are understandably pretty important to the everyday life of Chicagoans now and in 1972. Born in late 1952, Alan Charles Schwadner was an adopted child who reportedly did not get along well with his adoptive parents. In his youth, he spent time at a psychiatric hospital and was sentenced to a reform school. Schwadner was later paroled in April of 1971 and at age 19 moved into a basement apartment at 6501 North Fairfield Street in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Schwadner went by Lonnie to his friends and often spelled his last name without the second N using Schwadner. Schwadner wore his hair long, dressed in hippie clothes, again 1971, and was allegedly a fan of marijuana and amphetamines. 18-year-old Stephen Perra lived at his parents' house in suburban Evanston. His father was a school principal, and young Perra was considered a genius by those who knew him. Later, Alan Schwadner would claim that Para had an IQ of 193. Stephen Para took at least one biology course in the spring of 1971 at Mayfair College, a two-year city college on Chicago's north side, but did not finish, claiming he found it insufficiently challenging. Somehow, Para was selected in July of 1971 for a work-study program in microbiology, The program gave students an opportunity to earn money during the summer while taking college prep courses in biology, chemistry, and other sciences. Para reportedly did not get along with other students and was asked to leave. Stephen Para then somehow parlayed his amazing track record into an intern position at Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago, working without pay, with a team on a project exploring the possible involvement of a specific microorganism in the cause of the autoimmune disease lupus erythematosus. Apparently, enthusiasm and a willingness to work for no pay made up for a lack of schooling for para, and soon he was responsible for making smears of blood from lupus patients, staining slides, and examining the slides to look for the microorganism of interest. 
LabTech's thought pair was gifted, although he was still a novice in the world of microbiology. Schwadner and Para likely met at Mayfair College at 4626 North Knox, now home of the Irish American Heritage Center, in September of 1971 when Schwadner enrolled there. Alan Schwadner signed up for fall semester courses in modern Russian history, psychology, literature, humanities, and physical education, but he only attended three sessions of the Russian history course and none of the others. He had already begun talking to those he met about one of his favorite topics, the need to create a new society. Meanwhile, Stephen Parra took an intermediate biology course, Biology 201, although it is unclear on what that course focused. Now, I've often wondered how the nutters of the world meet up and think, you're right, new friend, we should try to overthrow the government. It was kind of that way with Schwadner, Para, and Rise. Rise, that, by the way, is R period, I period, S period, E period, appears to have taken form in November of 1971. Strangely, the precise meaning of the group's name was never revealed, but a source I found claimed that a police informant told his handlers that the R stood for reconstruction, the S for society, and the E for extermination. The informant could not recall the meaning of the I. Alan Schwadner kept a six-page Rise Manifesto in a binder in his apartment, although the document does not appear to have survived. According to later testimony, it included the belief that mankind was destroying itself and the planets, and the only way to preserve the environment was for the human race to be wiped out, except for a select group of people who would live in harmony with nature. According to the document, the world would be a better place if it were inhabited only by a small group of like-minded people who agreed on how to address its problems. I mean, so far I'm with them. In order to repopulate the planet, Schwadner planned to recruit people into the group who would each select a mate of the opposite sex. He reportedly envisioned that Rise would ultimately include 16 people, comprised of eight male-female pairs. Now I'm starting to see some problems with all this Rise stuff, but I do like that he was concerned about the planet. Schwadner recruited Stephen Para first and foremost as Para had the scientific expertise, finger quotes there, in their discussions about a weapon that would kill billions of people. The two decided that an infectious disease agent could create a deadly pandemic that would eliminate all of humanity, except the RISE members who would be immunized against the biological threats. Schwadner talked about creating an aerosol spray that could be dispersed in areas with large groups of people, like malls or airports, or spread over major cities crop duster style, and that air currents would disperse it around the world. Schwadner told one recruit they intended to use, quote, botulism, meningitis, typhoid, bubonic plague, end quote. And another recalled him saying, quote, typhoid, meningitis, botulism, anthrax, and diphtheria, end quote. These guys believed the appearance of all these diseases simultaneously would confuse the investigation into the outbreak. 
On January 3rd, 1972, Para and Schwadner visited Fort Sheridan, then the headquarters of the 5th Army outside of Chicago. The two young men were given a tour of the base and even obtained information on its water supply system. Some witnesses later claimed they saw a map of the Fort Sheridan water system in Schwadner's apartment. The map was marked to show where the group intended to inject typhoid fever organisms. This all got a little too weird for two of the RISE recruits who went to the police with their concerns about what Schwadner and Para were planning. At 8 p.m. on Sunday, January 16, 1972, an alert was issued to the police detail at Chicago's main water filtration plants, that one near Navy Pier and the other at 7800 South, warning the two youths planned to damage the plant or poison the water. Just after midnight on Tuesday, January 18, 1972, warrants were executed and both Alan Schwadner and Stephen Perra were taken into custody without incident. Among the evidence confiscated were substances tentatively identified as typhoid microorganisms. Later that day, Chicago's top officials gathered for a news conference to reassure locals that the water supply was safe, and this was only a, quote, harebrained scheme, end quote. Mayor Richard J. Daly, Police Superintendent James B. Conlisk Jr., and Water Commissioner James W. Jardine appeared at the news conference and explained that proper precautions had been taken. James Jardine explained that the chlorine continuously added to purify the water would have destroyed the typhoid bacteria. He pointed out that the addition of chlorine to drinking water was the most important measure for ending typhoid epidemics in the past. Quote, the main reason that Chicago's water is almost immune to poisoning is that such a large amount is pumped from the lake every day that it would dilute even the strongest poison so much that it would be harmless and virtually undetectable, Jardine said. State's attorney Edward V. Hanrahan claimed the plot extended beyond Chicago to other cities in the Midwest and said Fort Sheridan, the army base north of the city, was indeed a possible target. Now, I don't have a transcript of the news conference, but the papers made it sound like this harebrained scheme was kind of brushed off. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, security at the two main water facilities had been increased dramatically once word of the plot reached authorities. Of course, it didn't take long before those who knew Schwadner and Para showed up in the press. Their secret group was neither right-wing or left-wing, but, quote, seemed to be anti-everybody, end quote, according to former member Robert Swift, 22, of suburban Evanston. Quote, they were extremely upset over ecology, shared Swift. They felt there was no way to change the world unless they pulled off something drastic like this. They had a lot of philosophies on their master race idea. During the bond hearing for Para and Schwadner, two hospital employees at Chicago's Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center came forward to say they saw the two youths working on bacterial cultures at the center. Jacqueline Klancic, a medical technologist, was told by Para that the cultures were typhus, botulism, and meningitis. 
Dr. William Landau, a bacteriologist, noticed pair working on the cultures the previous November and had the cultures destroyed after talking with hospital security officials. Schwadner's attorney, Frank Oliver, downplayed the severity of the alleged plot, likening it to, quote, conspiring to blow up Chicago's loop by dropping a cherry bomb in the subway, end quote. Dr. Charles Kallick, chief of pediatrics at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center, countered Oliver by explaining that a full cup of pure botulism dumped into Chicago's water, quote, would not kill anyone, but some people would receive a toxic dose and be poisoned, end quote. The attorneys for Para and Schwadner claim the $250,000 bonds set for each of them were excessive, a decision by the Illinois Appellate Court to lower the bond amounts for the two was made. Stephen Paris was changed from $250,000 to $50,000, 10% of which, $5,000, he posted on February 17th. Schwadner's bail was lowered from $250,000 to $40,000, and he posted the required $4,000 in mid-March. On March 10th, both youths pleaded not guilty. Para and Schwadner were scheduled to appear before Judge Frank J. Wilson in criminal court on March 29th, but both failed to appear. Judge Wilson reinstated their original bonds of $250,000 each. Then things got quiet. Just where were the two? Other than the obligatory still-missing news stories... Not much was reported on Para and Schwadner until just after Independence Day weekend in July of 1972. A circuit court judge in Chicago received a letter from a Constance Willard of Delray Beach, Florida, in it, she offered Judge Robert J. Solsky transcripts of a conversation she had with her son, Marshall Green. Green, a pilot with the Jamaica Air Taxi Service on Montego Bay in Jamaica, claimed he was forced at gunpoint by two men on March 21st who demanded they be flown to Cuba. The pilot was allowed to leave Cuba some 11 days later in early April, but the two men, who Green identified as Schwadner and Para, were allegedly held in a Havana prison on charges of airplane hijacking. At first I thought, if this happened in April, why did this just come out in July? Well, it turns out the pilot's mother went to visit her son in Jamaica and recorded his experiences for possible use in a book. I cannot find anything that leads me to believe that book was ever completed. One year after the two men were charged with plotting to poison the water supply in Chicago, a lawyer for the two released a letter that he claimed was written by Stephen Para from Cuba. The letter attorney Richard Halperin shared claimed that Alan Schwadner was sentenced to an underground prison after he was convicted of, quote, counter-revolutionary activities, end quote. The letter did not elaborate on the specifics of those activities. On July 13, 1973, the Chicago Tribune carried an update on the story of Stephen Para, who claimed Cuba had given him permission to, quote, 
leave this hell on earth, end quote, and return to Chicago. In the letter, Para also wrote that other Americans disenchanted with life in Cuba would also be allowed to leave by the end of the year. Quote, the Cuban government finally has reached a conclusion to our problem of those people who wish to get out of this hell on earth, the letter said. It is that the people who wish to leave will be allowed to, but only to a capitalist country, end quote. At the end of January 1975, Stephen Para, then 22, surrendered after jumping bail and being on the run for three years, living in Cuba. Para said, quote, I felt it was about time I cleaned up my life, end quote. Para was returned to Chicago and held on his original $250,000 bond. He was first sent to the Cermak Hospital and later transferred to the county jail. Parrish shared that he and co-defendant Alan Schwadner separated after arriving in Cuba and that he believed Schwadner was either in a Cuban prison or dead. Parrish's time in Cuba does not sound pleasant at all. He claimed he was not permitted to work in Cuba and survived through the help of friends. Parrish contracted emphysema and pulmonary fibrosis while there, suffered from malnutrition and anemia, and lost 130 pounds from his starting weight upon arriving in Cuba of nearly 300 pounds. If I did the math correctly, that's a 43% loss. Yikes. He later blamed harassment by the Cuban government for his physical deterioration. In June of 1975, Judge Frank J. Wilson placed Para on five years probation and ordered him to undergo a psychiatric examination within 60 days. This already bizarre case took another turn in March of 1978 when a 27-year-old Milwaukee man named Garland Grant came forward Grant, facing charges of hijacking a commercial airliner in 1971, claimed he knew Alan Schwadner in the Cuban prison as Lonnie Switzer. Grant said Switzer slash Schwadner had told him he was from Chicago and came to Cuba after hijacking a plane in Jamaica. Grant gave this account of Alan Schwadner's fate. Quote, the prison director was drunk that night. Lonnie had P.O.W. written on his shirt, and the director asked him what that meant. Then he asked him what nationality he was. Lonnie told him he was an American. Then the director grabbed him and started banging Lonnie's head against a steel gate. End quote. The next day, Grant and other inmates were told that Switzer, as he was known, had died of a concussion. I tracked down the report of the death of an American citizen that pertained to Alan Charles Schwadner. It was filed in Cuba on April 29, 1975, and shows Schwadner's death as occurring on November 7, 1974, at 8.50 a.m. at the Hospital Del Recluso. The primary cause of death is listed as anoxia, or lack of oxygen, which if I'm reading it correctly, was caused by an infection that created a blood clot. Nothing was written about head trauma or a concussion, but 
Schwadner was interned at Cologne Cemetery in Vedado, Havana, and according to local laws at the time, two years must elapse before remains may be interred. Just long enough for decomposition to cover up any wrongdoing, right? Alan Schwadner's parents' names and address in Wisconsin is written on the back, which wasn't surprising but made me a little sad. And toward the bottom of this document were two other things of interest. Although Schwadner allegedly died in November of 1974, his death certificate was not issued until April 15, 1975. But even more strange, under other known relatives, the document lists that Alan Schwadner had a wife named Ivana Valavikova, who had an address in Czechoslovakia. Looking back at the events, most experts agree that the efforts of Rise to kill off the Earth's population wouldn't have gone very far. But one wonders what would cause these two misguided junior college outcasts to even conceive of a plot to poison Chicago's water supply. Thanks for listening to today's episode titled Rise, the Plot to Poison Chicago's Drinking Water. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited one-man band style by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. You can send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to a number of Chicago-related books and other items about Chicago's amazing history if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Don't forget to check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by the inimitable John K. Schneider. If you need art for something you're working on, reach out to John at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.